Welcome to Practical Theology, a podcast series by Battle Creek Friends Church. Our hope is that by listening, you feel equipped in your faith to speak out in confidence about what you believe and live it out. We're here to help you seek the Lord throughout your day. So here's your host, Bible teacher, father, husband, and guy who likes cookies, Leo Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Practical Theology. Today we talk about God's view of race, slavery, and culture. So before we begin, the biggest battle we'll have here today is the battle between emotion and reason. And whenever this topic comes up, you definitely see a lot of emotion, especially in in the present age that we live in where we feel as that there are things that are unjust. We see unjust events, and then we generalize that the entire world is unjust, which the entire world is fallen, so I won't argue with that. But to what degree do we talk about this? We'll talk more about justice later on. But for now, I just want to start building a picture of the way that God views us as a human race. And the first thing to say is this. Uh, there's a, a point of solidarity we are a human race. There might be multiple ethnic groups, but we are one human race, right? In Acts 17, 26, it says this, from one man, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, right? We are all one in Christ Jesus. God created us all. There wasn't, he didn't create us separately in such as like, okay, I'm going to do this group of people here and this group of people here. Humanity was created as one. So that's the first point. Yes, there are many ethnic groups, but there's only one race. The human race is where we're going with this. And yes, as humans, given the fall, we are all sinners also. That kind of creates the other problem that we're going to battle. The idea that our simple nature allows us to feel emotions that may not be just or might be just, and then we don't know how to address those problems when we feel wronged. Scripture's full of people in unjust situations. The woman with the unjust judge story. The idea that we cry out for justice when people are oppressed, they cry out for justice. This all is very biblical, very common. But there's also a right way to do it, and we see wrong ways to do it. We'll explore those as well. But looking into this, we also look at this view. God repeats this. Humanity isn't independent, right? There is no self-made man. None of us lives to himself. Romans 14, 7 and 8 gives this idea. It says, none of us lives to himself. It also says, none of us dies to himself. Then it makes this summary statement, we belong to the Lord. No one is completely independent. You know, woman was created from man, and yet man is born of woman. 1 Corinthians 11, 12 gives this impression where there are just no self-made men, right? We, every man has a mother. The whole human race is, is dependent on something. You know, both the idea of procreation, but also on the idea of the creator, God. So with that, We're going to start to transition into the idea of the slavery as a concept in both the New Testament and Old Testament. As we begin talking about this, we'll look at the New Testament account first. I think it's important important to know that in either case, what we have is not the traditional United States antebellum South form of slavery. When we hear the word slavery, I think being part of U.S. history, we automatically gravitate towards this idea of what happened in the antebellum South with the slavery 
that occurred there, the Civil War, and that's where our mind goes. But in reality, the biblical accounts of slavery we're going to define much different. You will not see the antebellum South. So the one favor you can do for yourself is kind of erase any pre-existing views that you have of slavery, and we're going to define it biblically. We're going to see when it uses the word slavery, if it actually means the word slavery, we'll define like whether or not it means indentured servitude, for example. We'll also try to talk a little bit about the culture. But put any preconceived notions aside and be open-minded towards the idea, because the important part of this is not to sit there and say, I can't believe God allowed slavery, right? It's to understand what exactly God did and did not allow and define it that way. Don't let the word define it. Let God define the word. So here we go. First of all, in the New Testament, we look at um, the idea of the Roman Empire, and they definitely had slavery in a form that was not the same as the Old Testament. And we'll talk about the differences there. But there was this idea of enslaving someone else um, and making them your servant. Uh, It was not of the antebellum South. As a matter of fact, there were ways to free yourselves. There were ways to... um, also, the treatment and like the laws that were there for slavery were much different than what we've seen in the U.S. history. But there are two passages I want to talk about with God's view specifically towards slavery, especially during the Roman Empire. And the first one is Galatians 3.28. And Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Probably the easiest way to see that is clearly when it comes to the human race, there isn't the slave human race and the master human race. That's not what God intended at all. As a matter of fact, Paul argues that even Jewish and Gentile, God's like, there isn't the Jew Gentile Jew race, nor is there just the Gentile race. He's still saying, look, I understand there are differences among people, but in the end, you are all hopefully part of Christ Jesus. In this particular one, it's about like the church and coming to Christ, but in the idea of humanity and creation, We're still all the human race. So this supports the prior point I was making earlier. How about this part here in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24? Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Think about that point right there. Talking about when you're free to be Christ's slave. Well, if you just want to look at the words, like, oh, that sounds horrible. As a matter of fact, if some people would say that doesn't preach well to an antebellum South crowd, like as soon as you say you're the Lord's slave, it's like, that's not pleasant. Right. It's because that's not the way he meant it. That's why we need to define it this way. So apparently this is actually a good thing. If you were free when you were called, you are now Christ's slave. This is an idea of being his servant, about bowing the knee. Once again, not so popular of a sentiment when it says like, well, you're going to bow down to somebody. Yes. Yes. If he's Lord, if he's the creator of all things. Yeah, we will. Let's continue on in verse 23 there. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. That's a great point. When we think about that idea of slavery, you know, we have employers. We have families that we enslave ourselves to. Now, you don't have to use that word. You can say that we serve. But that's the point of what we're talking about here. We don't want to, just because a word is dirty, we don't need to just sit there and say, well, every time it's used, therefore it's dirty. We need to find out how the word is being used in the context it's being used. So far, it looks like here to be a slave is to be a servant of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in. 
when God called them. Note, though, at this point, the Roman Empire had institutionalized slavery, um, and Paul knows this, and he's, he's battling through it. So he's like, look, there's a right way to be a slave, and there's this other way to be a slave, and you should try to be free there. But when it comes to Christ, you should be a servant of the Lord. So he's contrasting these two ideas. I think it's a good picture to paint. I think it makes the idea of like, well, free means I can do whatever I want. Well, kind of. It depends on if you're truly free, especially when it comes to religious aspects, like of God. To think of yourself as free means something totally different when you're just thinking about yourself versus when you're thinking of others. So now we transition over to the Old Testament. One Hebrew scholar wrote this, that there was no Hebrew word or vocabulary containing the word slavery. It was only servanthood. So what we're going to do is look through some passages that concern slavery in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read them. And I want to point out how these defy, really, our cultural understanding of slavery. So the first one is this, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. This was called the year of Jubilee, by the way. Um, And this was a common thing. So you had to free your servant after that time period. Going on to verse 13. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So two things there. One, not only were you going to help them and free them, but you were also going to set them up to succeed. You were going to provide for them so that it wasn't just that they, nope, you're on your own now, you got nothing. You were actually going to bless them as though they worked for you. You would give them the blessings that you received through their hand. This is a lot like profit sharing in a company. When you are encouraging your employees by what they did for you, that I will also bless you. So they give out of the blessings they received to help that person start off. He also comments about how they were slaves in Egypt, which is a constant reminder for them that, hey, remember when you were enslaved in Egypt, when you were oppressed, we never want to do that to anybody. And I want you to always remember that. So don't do it like that. When you were freed from that, that should be your example about how I rescued you. You should also look at that as a way to help and treat others. Verse 16 says this, but if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, Then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. So we see this idea of putting an awl into the ear of the person if they want to stay for life. And that doesn't sound particularly present, pleasant, but uh, I would bet that it's a lot like ear piercing. Uh, I don't think that's a pleasant experience either. But I think in the symbolism of it, the idea of becoming a servant is important. The idea that it was so well there that you didn't want to leave, would you ever define that as your understanding of slavery? But yet these people did. So they definitely didn't look at slavery as slavery Maybe if it was just like a servant, and I can imagine this. Imagine that you don't have any responsibilities about worrying about your crop or worrying about how to provide a shelter for your family. Imagine you find this guy that you're working for 
and he's been your, your owner, if you want to call it this, for six years. And you're like, man, I've got food. I've got shelter. I've got community. I've got people taking care of me. I don't want to leave this. And I don't mind the arrangement. I'm good with it. And you decide you want to stay. God says, yeah, let them stay. And there's a way to do this. This is a formal thing. I think that's not slavery at all. As a matter of fact, what you'll start to see through all of these is God has a welfare system. God, is, God developed the first welfare system where we take care of people. And if people are indebted, if people can't pay their debts, yes, they're going to owe you. And yes, you don't get, you get to sit there and say, oh, I'm declaring bankruptcy. No, you have to pay your debt. And they're going to find ways to work through this. But yet they're still humanitarian in a sense. Like they're still providing for your fellow human while also working out the relationship of the debt. Well, let's continue on. Let's look at what Job 31, 14 through 16 says. And notice when we read this, position means nothing. Notice also the equal sense when it comes to justice. Here we go. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when God called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? That's a great summary of everything we've talked about so far. This idea that we're all one, that we're all dependent on our mothers and God, and I think the very first part there, what I want to point out the most is, he says, look, if I do any of these things to my servants, won't God judge me for that? So he's not treating them lesser. As a matter of fact, he's treating them as an equal. And that really makes it tied to the idea that when God sees him, he's expecting that he treats a fellow human as he was treated himself. So Job, with the culture that surrounds him, sees servants as just a different position, but still people, and the responsibility he has to treat them as such. Okay, let's look at Exodus 21, 20, and 21. This talks about the treatment of a slave, and I think this also starts just to define more and more how there is this definition that is not antebellum South, that is also a idea of a welfare system and how to work in a culture. It says this, anyone who beats their male and female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Now the wording there is just, it's translated. Some translations have different translations of the idea of if the slave dies versus if they're beaten or unconscious. But the idea of the word is that the slave would die. And so this is very common in the Old Testament, right? Uh, a life for a life, a tooth for a tooth, you know? So like if you killed somebody, you deserve death. A pretty harsh form of capital punishment there. But it's showing the consistency that God is expecting. They're not lesser people because they're your servants, right? It's also interesting, like I said, there's no Jewish word, no Hebrew word for the idea of slave, even though it's translated that for our English. The appropriate term would be more of, if you were to translate it in English, like an indentured servant. How about Exodus 21, 16? Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. So kidnapping meant to put someone into slavery involuntarily. This is somewhat like what happened with Joseph, um, but this is exactly what we picture when we would take and 
take ships over to Africa and then bring back people. That is totally kidnapping. That would be clearly wrong. And, and notice that even if they're not dead, God says, no, no, if you did that, the intent behind it, God's command is that they are to be put to death. So there again, he's not, he doesn't want them to be trafficked at all. This idea of trafficking humans and selling them is not only foreign, it's an abomination. It's detestable enough where people are to be put to death for it. So it just shows how aggressively God stands against this idea of forcing a lesser grade person, like trying to sit there and say, no, 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 they're lesser than us. He is not about that at all. Deuteronomy 24.7 says this, If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. See, not only is he saying that it's not just, but he's saying this is a bad practice and it's going to corrupt the people around them, which we'll tie more into later about the cultural significances. Different cultures are just fine. God actually created different cultures. We'll see that next time. But here, we don't want to also have a culture. They can have wrong morals in a different culture. They can have bad ethics in a different culture. So it's not just the culture. It's the values of the culture that God might care about. So when you see something like that, where it's like, man, God really hated those people. He didn't hate those people. God hated things that people did. God hates sin, for example. So if your culture has a certain sin that it does, like the Canaanites did, where they were worshiping false gods, sacrificing children, yes, he's not happy about that. Yes, your culture is an abomination to him, but not you as a human. You as a human are valuable to him. We'll even see more about that. doesn't matter what culture you're from. Uh, there are many people that were adopted into the Israelite culture. Let's go to Exodus 21, 2 through 6. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, and does not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be the servant for life. This sounds a little harsh at first, but when you think about it, this is also the idea of a welfare system. And for if a man was single when he came, then he was supposed to leave single when he came into the indentured servanthood. If he was married when he came, then he would leave with his wife and his family. That, that would be understandable. But if he came and he was single and he met a woman and he decided to get married, that created a problem, right? Because there was still a debt that needed to be paid. There was still this indentured service that was required. So you couldn't just marry out of it, like marrying to get citizenship, for example. Um, it was a little bit more complicated than that. But even then, God knows this is a problem. And look at Scripture addresses this, where he talks about, look, this is still doable. If you, if you have this woman and you want to stay with her, you can. You go to the judges and you're like, nope, I'm going to stay here. This is our family now. This is how it's going to work. And just like we saw before, this could be a very beneficial system for, for the culture, for the group. So just once again, you see how compassionate God is towards the people who are in need. And he has this idea of supporting them in need and telling people like, look, you cannot take advantage of people in need because he knows that's easy to happen. They have no means for themselves. You can totally take advantage of them. So he sets up all of the scripture to defend those rights, to keep them in one regard, what we would call free, but at the same time, servants. Well, one more passage here, Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 17. 
if a slave has taken refuge with you, and this word would mean somebody from a foreign culture has come and, and left and they were a slave, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Note here it, that, that, remember, it was understood they were from a foreign culture. There was no um, extradition treaties, for example, to say, oh, you got to send them back to this culture. The idea that they came there and they saw God's people, God's like, no, if they were oppressed, let's help them. Let's deliver them. Now, that doesn't mean they can't become a servant. That doesn't mean they wouldn't enter into the indentured servanthood. But definitely, other cultures didn't have the biblical view of race, of culture and race there along with slavery. They were defined in certain ways. So it would be very freeing to be a slave in another culture, to come to this culture and to see that you have opportunity, that you have somebody who cares for you, specifically God, but also represented through his people, the love that he shares. So we'll, we'll end there. The point I want to build up to when we talk next week is this idea of going from God's view of humanity as one race, how he treats people, and even when there are these less than ideal situations, like people in need or people needing jobs or food, God has built something that although we use the word slavery, is definitely a form of indentured servanthood, which is a welfare system to take care of people. And it is not to be abused. And when it is abused, he has justice involved. He says there is a just way to handle this. We're not going to let evil things come into this culture. We're not going to allow this idea of enslaving people wrongly into our culture. We're going to care for them as a human race. So until next time, Go and see people like this. Go and live out the fact that we are all one human race.